invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from the Gospel of Mark. Let's read God's good word together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. In 1963, during the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders decided that because of the situation in Birmingham as one of the strongholds of segregation in the South, that they needed to turn their attention there to begin to address the things that were happening there. And uh, Dr. King, in his book, Why We Can't Wait, talks about what it might have been like addressing a white audience, what it might have been like if you were born a person of color in Birmingham. These, these are his words. He says, you would be born in a Jim Crow hospital to parents who probably lived in a ghetto. You would attend a Jim Crow school. It is not really true that the city fathers had never heard of the Supreme Court's court segregation, school segregation order. They had heard of it, and since its passage had consistently expressed their defiance, typified by the prediction of one official that blood would run in the streets before desegregation would be permitted to come to Birmingham. You'd spend your childhood in parks, playing in the streets because the colored parks were abysmally inadequate. When a federal court banned park segregation, you would find that Birmingham closed down its parks and gave up its baseball team rather than integrate them. If your family attended church, you would go to a Negro church. If you wanted to visit a church attended by white people, you would not be welcome. For although your white fellow citizens would insist that they were Christians, they practiced segregation as rigidly in the house of God as they did in the theater. You would be living in a city where brutality directed against Negroes was an unquestioned and unchallenged reality. One of the city commissioners, a member of the body that ruled municipal affairs, would be Eugene Bull Connor a racist who prided himself on knowing how to handle the Negro and keep him in his place. As commissioner of public safety, Bull Connor entrenched for many years in a key position in the Birmingham power structure, displayed as much contempt for the rights of the Negro as he did defiance of the authority of the federal government. That's the context into which Dr. King decided, this is where I need to go and to work for justice. If I were in his shoes, that doesn't seem like the kind of place that I would want to go. And yet he did. And he was able to persevere. And so they went and they organized. They started with, um, with sit-ins at lunch counters and began in that way. And, uh, and the city used different tactics. Uh, Bull Connor and others used different tactics to try to stop them. One of those is by seeking a court order about their, their um, permit to gather. And, and basically an injunction was filed and the court ordered them not to gather, have any demonstrations until things could be worked out through the court system. It was an effective way of basically stalling and stopping any direct action that would happen. And so they were faced with a choice. Do they disobey a court order, violate the law in order to do that? And ultimately, after soul-searching, King and others decided to. And they organized a march on Good Friday, which was illegal. And they marched, and he was thrown into jail. And that's the place where he received a letter from clergy, white clergy in Birmingham, telling him basically they agreed with his goals, but not his actions. They needed to commit themselves to law and order and just wait. 
And if you've read Dr. King's letter from the city, from the Birmingham city jail, you know his response. And so he was in this place where he had been thrown into jail. He was not just going up against people like Bull Connor who were willing to use violence, who were willing to turn fire hoses on them, who were willing to sick police dogs on them and attack them brutally, who were willing to do all of these kinds of things. He also had people who were supposedly on his side, who as he was sacrificing himself and going to jail were telling him, not like that, you need to just wait longer, which was easy to say from a place of privilege, right? I mean, not, they didn't have anything to lose. But he did. At the same time, he had others in his movement who, who basically said, you know, this nonviolent stuff is not working. It's taking too long. They're using violence against ourselves. We need to arm ourselves and, and protect ourselves. We need to, to be able to use self-defense because waiting around is never going to work. And so there were nationalists, black nationalists, who were on the other side. And so he had these threats from without who were trying to take him down and also people who, who wanted the same goals as he did who were also pulling in different directions. And somehow he found it within himself to persevere, to keep going in the face of all of that. And uh, even in jail, he, he was an inspiration to people and continues to be today. If you've read the, the letter from the, from the jail, it's so inspirational and convicting. But this is how he describes what he tried to do whenever he was facing resistance from within. He says, I've tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we need to emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalist. For there is the more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. And that's what he stuck with, and ultimately what led to desegregation in the South. Now, it was imperfect, and we still have a ways to go, but he was able to persevere, to keep going, to be resilient in the face of resistance that most of us can only imagine. How did he do that? And how can we do that? That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're talking about in the midst of this sermon series. We started last week a new series called Resilient, Finding Strength in the Midst, Finding Strength in the, uh, I should know it, I, I wrote it, but uh, Finding Strength in the Chaos. And that's what we're looking at. In the chaos that we all find ourselves in with all the stressors that we have, how can we persevere? Because there are so many forces, internal and external, that make us want to quit. And so how do we keep going? And not only how do we keep going, but how can we become stronger and how can we thrive? And uh, this is one of the inspirations that we have is from this quote from Dr. King. He says, with this faith, we will be able, be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope, that we will be able to take the chaos and resistance that comes at us and find hope in it, and not just for ourselves, but for others as well. And so as we're going through this series, the, the goal that we have, what Pastor Mark shared with us, is that it's to become ready for God to use us to transform resistance and despair into hope. Because we encounter resistance everywhere that we find ourselves, particularly as people of faith, we encounter resistance in our discipleship of Christ. It's a constant companion. It continually comes at us. And so we've got to find a way to persevere, to keep going in the midst of it. And it's not just, it's not just about just becoming, um, well, Todd Bolsinger puts it best in his book, Tempered Resilience. He says it's not about becoming smarter or tougher. It's about becoming stronger and more flexible. It's about becoming tempered. 
And so uh, Pastor Mark showed us this great illustration of what that looks like, that you can walk on that staircase because the glass is tempered. If it were not tempered glass, that would be a bad idea, right? Uh, uh, anyway, painful. But, uh, but it, because it's been tempered, it's safe to walk on because it's become strengthened and, and flexible because it's resilient. And so we can. And that's the goal that we're trying to, f- to seek for ourselves because the world needs grounded, teachable, attuned, adaptable, and tenacious followers of Jesus who embody his love in the world. And so that's what we're trying to figure out. How can we be that? How can we be that in the midst of the resistance that we all face? Because we face it in so many ways. And in the face of anxiety, chaos, and loss, many of us just feel like we're about to break. Maybe we're just not sure that we can take any more of it. And, uh, you know, the pace and the demands of life today, they're often more than we can keep up with. And I don't know about you all, but last week was the last week of school, and, and I had a lot of emails telling me the things I was supposed to do and keeping up with dress-up days and which were the days that we were allowed to bring a backpack and which days we weren't, and also making sure that we knew where our kids were going tomorrow and figuring all of that out. And I had to pay my water bill too, but I, I have to pay that in the app, but my phone had deleted the app because I hadn't used it recently enough, so I started to download it, and then I got distracted and forgot. Eventually, I remembered my water bill's paid. It's not going to get shut off this time. But, but all of those things just pile up and we try to keep up with it and, and it's often more than we can keep up with. And then we see how other people are doing or at least the curated versions of their lives that they share with us and it seems like they're doing all right, right? I mean, no one else has trouble remembering to pay their water bill because the app may or may not be downloaded on their phone. And, and then we look at others when we, feel that when we fail to keep up or measure up, we feel unworthy, like, what's wrong with me? I can't keep, I can't keep up with everyone else, or, or they seem so successful, or, or I, I see the house that they moved into, and I looked it up on Zillow, and there's no way that I could afford that. Like, how are they doing that well that they can do that? We, we look around, and we think, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't do that? And, and here's the problem. Too often, we ground our identity in our success and our status, and so if things are going well for me, then I'm great. You know, who I, if I'm getting promoted and I'm at the top of my field, then everything is wonderful. If, if my kids are doing well, I mean, if you've got kids, you know this is the temptation, right? How well they're doing is how well I'm doing. And if they're successful, then I'm, I'm great and obviously worthy. But sometimes it doesn't go that well. That's the temptation that we all face, is uh, really to derive our worth from our children's success. And that's dangerous for them and for us. And in all of these things, we look for success as a metric of who we are and how we're doing. And if we do that, they're inevitably going to fail. And whenever those things do fail, our entire identity is called into question, right? I mean, if I don't get the promotion that I've been working toward, that's my whole goal in, in my career, like, who am I even? I thought that I was this person who was on this trajectory, and now I'm not. Or if my kid doesn't make it to advanced placement, whatever, you know, who, who am I? I was the kind of parent who had smart kids, and now that's not happening. My daughter's going to be in third grade, and she hasn't been checked out by a single MBA scout yet. <laughs> and I'm, I'm really struggling. Like, who am I if she actually doesn't play basketball? But you know that feeling, right? I mean, who am I if, if I'm not successful, if the people around me aren't successful? And that's what happens to us whenever our identity is not built on solid ground. And we actually can see the, the opposite of this, of what that looks like to build our identity on solid ground in the life of Jesus. 
And, and so in the, in, in the Gospels, we don't know a lot of Jesus' early life. Matthew and Luke tell us the, the story of his birth, and uh, we get a little bit, we, we learn about the visit of the Magi and, and their family moving to Egypt. And Matthew, um, Luke tells us about one episode where Jesus was left at the temple in Jerusalem, which, you know, uh, parents, if, if you've never left your kid in Jerusalem, you're doing better than Mary and Joseph. Hopefully that's some reassurance, but that happened when he was 12. And, and so the, those, that's really all that we know of his life before he was 30. And, and so he, he at least hadn't done anything that was worth remarking upon um, to the gospel writers. And, uh, and so that's really where we pick up with him. And it's where the gospel of Mark starts. And, and so before the beginning of his public ministry, when he went out teaching and healing, um, Jesus was baptized by John. That was the fir- that's the first thing that we read about in the gospel of Mark. And this is how he says it. He says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased." And this was before he, he'd begun anything, before any of the healings, before the Sermon on the Mount, before he had done anything, Jesus knew that he was loved and pleasing to God. It wasn't on the basis of, of any success that he had had. It was just because of who he was and who God is. And, and here's the thing. If we ground our identity in our success or in others' approval, then we'll be crushed whenever it fails, And yet that's not how Jesus did it. Jesus wasn't looking for the approval of others. He wasn't looking for success. God said before he had done anything, before he had earned any approval, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's where our identity comes from. Just from that initial belovedness before we can do anything to earn God's favor. It's all about who God is. You are loved no matter what. And whenever we start there, we can actually step out and to do things. We don't have to worry about failure because if I fail, then that's part of my identity. Then I, then I am a failure. Then I am a loser. And I love the way that psychologist professor Cynthia Erickson puts it. She says, courage requires a Christian identity of knowing you are loved and affirmed by God and that your identity is not in your achievements or titles. Then when you're grounded there, then you can take risks and risk failure. Because if you fail, it's not who you are. It's just something that happened if you're grounded and know that you are affirmed and loved by God. And so here's the, this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. And so if you're, uh, if you've fallen asleep, it's a good time to wake up. But you are not your job. You're not your roles. You're not your status or your net worth. You are God's beloved child, period. And compared to that, none of that other stuff matters. That is at the core of who you are. You are loved by God. And all of that other stuff that's great, some of it's good, some of it's helpful, some of it is, uh, is maybe less helpful, but your being loved by God is the most important thing about you. That is your identity and nothing else. Nothing you can earn, nothing you can prove to others, not that you can finally get up to somewhere so that everyone will see how glorious you are. God already sees that. God made you that way. Who you are is someone who is loved by God. This is a, this is a photo of 
uh, nun, not your typical habit that uh, she's attired in. Her name's Sister Madonna Bruder. She's known as the Iron Nun. She competed in triathlons, and uh, I think in, in 2012, she became one of the oldest people in her 80s. She set an age group record for completing a triathlon. I think anyone in their 80s who can swim 2.4 miles, like, isn't that enough? You've got to also run a marathon and bike over 100 miles on top of that. Like, that's, that's making all of us look bad. But, but she's, she's done some amazing things, and because of what she's accomplished, they invited her before one race to come and to speak to the, uh, to the people who would participate in another triathlon the next day. And, uh, and the core of what she said to them was this. She said, tomorrow when things get tough out there, remember, you are loved into existence. If you get discouraged and want to quit, if you get injured and can't finish, if things don't go the way you hope, even though you've trained for this day for months or even years, even then remember you were loved into existence. Isn't that a beautiful message? Isn't that a beautiful thing to remember whenever you fail or whenever something that you've been working toward doesn't, the, the project or the deal that you've been working toward for months falls apart? And you wonder, you know, what, what's wrong with me that this didn't go my way? Remember that you are loved into existence. Whenever your child is struggling in school and you feel like you've done everything you can, and you've hired private tutors and all of those kinds of things, and it's still not getting any better, remember that you are loved into existence. Whenever you are in Target and your toddler throws a fit and everyone is looking at you and you feel like you do not know how to manage your child, remember you were loved into existence. Not that the last one has ever happened to me, but <laughs> maybe it has. But whenever we know that that is the core of who we are, then we can keep going. Then we can actually step forward into the things that God has for us and we can take risks and we can fail and we can not only shrug them off, but we can learn from them and grow stronger because of it. Because here's one of the really strange things. Well, we, we tend to want to make ourselves comfortable, to, to seek comfort as much the, as we can. We're actually made stronger through stress. We're made stronger through stress. And, and, and so whenever we know our identity is secure, then we can actually face resistance with courage and actually step into those stressors that normally we try to avoid, right? Because has anyone ever tried to get stronger by not lifting anything, right? Does that work? No, the reason that we lift weights, that, that we invented this thing called barbells, which is kind of like we just make stuff that's really heavy because we need the resistance in order to get stronger, right? I mean, if, I never, if my muscles never experienced any stress, then I would just be a blob on this. I wouldn't be able to stand up. It's because of stress that we're able to do the things that we're able to do. And whenever we encounter that stress, whenever we lift weights, we actually become stronger through the resistance and the stress. Without stress, we can't grow stronger. It's, it's not just true in the gym. It's true in our lives as well. Now, there is a balance here, right? Because eventually there, there is a limit. We're finite. We have mortal bodies. There is such a thing as chronic stress that has negative effects, but it's the acute stress and then rest and recovery that makes it possible for us to grow and to become stronger. And we see this not only, not only in the gym, but not only in, uh, in the literature, but also in the scripture as well. And so this is what James says. He says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. I've got to confess, that is not my typical disposition when I face trials of any kind. But that's what he says, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. 
That's the way that we grow and become mature is, is by encountering trials, by encountering stressors, right? I mean, this is why it's so important for, for me to learn that whenever my daughters are struggling with something, not to swoop in and fix it for them, right? They need to have that experience of struggling with something or else they're never going to, to get any stronger. The reason, I, if I picked up my toddler and carried her everywhere, she'd be two years old and still not walking. We have to let them experience that stress and we have to experience that ourselves as well is so important. And, and we actually see this in Jesus' life as well. After, after he was baptized, after he heard the voice of God telling him that he was God's beloved son in whom God was well pleased, this is what happened next. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. He immediately went into a time of testing as he prepared for his ministry. It's only after his baptism and his testing that he actually goes out into the world and starts doing the things that God called him to. Even Jesus went and was tested. And that's why we need that as well. Because here's the thing, we don't just like become because we, we decided something. We don't just become, you don't become a parent by reading a parenting book. Like if someone's thinking about having kids, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. It, if you want to become a parent, you have to actually experience that your stomach dropping whenever you're leaving the hospital and realizing the nurse is not coming with you. And even though you had to pass a test before they would let you drive a car, you can raise a human with no license. And just that feeling, sitting up through nights and getting no sleep, that's how we become parents. And it's true throughout our lives. We become, we become by doing. We become parents by parenting. We become leaders by leading. I'm sorry to tell you this, but if you read a leadership book, that doesn't make you a good leader. It may even make you a bad one if you think that it does, right? Because you don't have any self-awareness. Not that I know that from experience either, right? But we have to actually lead people to learn how to do it. We have to try and fail in order to grow. You don't become a spouse because you went to premarital counseling or because someone said, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Like that doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. You have to actually get up and, and deal with people and to realize, oh my gosh, you, you just drop your towel after you're done with it and leave it on the floor. Like what is wrong? You have to work through those things. Courtney's worked through that with me, and, uh, and she's okay. That's how, that's how that happens. We become disciples of Jesus, not just because we say something, but because we actually take, we walk in his footsteps. We do the things that he tells us to. We have to do in order to become. And it's not about earning, it, because we're loved no matter what. But if we want to become, then we have to do. And whenever we do those things, one of the chief ways that we learn is by failing. But whenever we fall short, if we're humble, and, and particularly if we know that my identity doesn't rest in my success, then, then we can learn from our mistakes. And humility is really what, what holds it all together. And so uh, Pastor Mark showed us this passage last week, but I want to come back to it. This is from, uh, from the first Peter, from Peter's letter. He says, don't lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. He's talking to elders. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. I know some of us don't like that, but let's keep going. And all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. That's really what makes it all work, right? Because if you've followed someone who is not humble, that's not a lot of fun. It becomes all about them. But whenever someone is humble, then you can follow them. Then it actually becomes a joy to work with them and to follow them. Humility also allows us to fail well because we know it's not about us. 
right? In that scene in Target when your, your toddler is losing it, and I don't know if you've been there, but, but what I think is, you know, everyone is looking at me and judging me right now because I can't figure out how to make my child be quiet. Like, not that, anyway, apparently that should be a thing, but, uh, but that, and, and in my head what happens is all of these people think I'm a bad parent, and what am I doing in that moment? I'm making it about me, and not about my kid. And whenever I can accept that this isn't about me, this is about being in a normal developmental stage and, and learning what no means or learning what it's like to be tired, like that those things happen to us, then I can actually respond better. Because whenever I'm making it about me, I don't do my best parenting, right? Because uh, I'm worried about me. Whenever I'm actually worried about my child, it, it goes so much better. Humility allows us to make things not about us. And we can also accept that eventually we're going to disappoint people. Even when we do the right thing, people are going to be disappointed. And uh, sometimes we think, I shouldn't have to disappoint people. Everyone should be happy with me. They should like me all the time. And uh, let's, let's just disabuse ourselves of that notion. Not even Jesus could do that. Or maybe he could have, but he chose not to if he could. And, and so this is what we see. After, after he came out into the wilderness, he began preaching in the area around Galilee and came to Capernaum and, and was staying with Peter. And, uh, and this is what happened there. One, one evening after he'd come home at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. So this was happening at sunset. And, and back in the time before electric lights, like not a lot was happening after dark. You had oil lamps, but you weren't just going to you know, waste those staying up all night. And so everyone was gathered around the door after sunset. And Jesus cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And, and this, is what he, this is what he did the next day in the morning when it was still very dark. So he got up early. He got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said, everyone is searching for you. And I know this is like our deepest fear if we ever turn our phones off. Like that's what we're going to get. Everyone is looking for you. The entire world fell apart because you were unavailable for 30 minutes. How selfish of you, right? I mean, we, we see Jesus and that's what happens to Jesus. And it's interesting the, the way that he could have responded, right? Like, he could have chosen sarcasm. We don't really see Jesus doing that very often, but he could have said, thank you, Peter. I got up before anyone else was awake and went to a deserted place because I wanted to be found, right? Thank you for finding me in this place where obviously I was just waiting for someone to come tell me that everyone wanted me. He could have also chosen self-pity, right? I stay up all late into the night healing all these people, and what do I get for it? They come and find me and want me to heal more. He could have also just given in to the anxiety. I mean, could have said, okay, if people need me, then I have to go right now. They need me, I've got to go. There are people who, who need help and, you know, thank you, God, for this time together. We'll pick it up later, but people need me, so I've got to, I've got to. Jesus could have done all of those things, but he was secure in his identity. He knew who he was, and, and whenever we're secure in our identity, and it enables us to pursue our purpose without responding to other people's anxiety. We can deal with that without having to just react to it. And so I think, this is, um, I think this is so telling for us today, the, the way that Jesus responded. He said, let us go to the neighboring towns. Now, this, these were not, the neighboring towns were not the people who were looking for him, but he said, let us go to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. 
And so Jesus has all of this pressure on him. Everyone was looking for him. More people wanted to be healed and to be in his presence. And yet he knew that his task was not just to, to be the savior of Capernaum. He knew there were other places that he needed to go to. So he was able to, to separate himself from Peter's anxiety and say, no, there's something else. He didn't go off on Peter. He also didn't give in to him. But he was able to say, no, there's something else that I need to do. And here's something that I think that I hope all of us know. But your purpose is not to make others happy. That's their job. Now, there's nuance here, because part of our purpose is loving others, loving our neighbors ourselves. but it's not to make them happy. We can't control that. And so we can bless others, we can love them in the way that we need to, given our relationships and, and the things that are available to us, but we can't make them happy. Some of you all know it's, it's dance recital season, and my mom owns a dance studio in Norman, and she had a recital last night, and so I got to go. It's one of my favorite things is just seeing the, all of these students who come and are blessed by her. But one of the things that she knows is she can't, just, she can't make everyone happy. If she did, there would be every student in the class would be front and center. Do you, how well do you think that would work? Everyone would have a different costume because they didn't like the one that she picked. And they would all be doing different dances to different music. Can you imagine if you have a class of 12 and you have 12 different songs going? Like, no one is happy with that. You, you make yourself crazy trying to make everyone happy. And yet somehow we think, well, I can do it. I can do it. If other people can't make everyone happy, that's on them, right? No, happiness is an inside job. That's something that we have to take responsibility to. We have responsibilities to others, but it's not to make them happy. We can't meet every present, every every preference that everyone else has. And so whenever we think about our purpose, it's not making others happy. It is about, it's always grounded in the great commandment that Jesus gives to us, love God and love others. You shall love the God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's at the core of it. And so anytime, you know, we may have different, different purposes for different stages of our lives. We may have clarity about that. We may not. Dr. King obviously was very clear about his purpose, I think that's probably rare. Most of us are not that clear. That, that's a gift that he had. But in any situation, whatever that is, we can ask, you know, is this purpose helping me to love God? Is it helping me to love others? And, and if those things are not in alignment, then, then we get a sense that we need to, to change the way that we're living. We need to change the focus of our purpose. And so one of the ways that we try to practice that is, as a church, and if you're a member, you're a part of this, is, is knowing, is being clear about our goal. And so our goal, our purpose at Acts 2 is to help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. And so we think about different things that, that we could do as a staff and with our leadership, and, and we ask ourselves whenever we're making those plans, is this helping us help people become radical Christ followers? And so it would be really cool if we had an ice cream shop on campus. I would personally love that. Like just out on Covell, we have ice cream. We can go anytime. Of course, staff would get free ice cream, I, I assume, in this fantasy. But we'd ask ourselves, like, that, that's great. That would make a lot of people happy. Does it help people become radical Christ followers? Probably not, right? And so, so we're not going to do that uh, unless, the, unless we come up with a really creative way to turn ice cream into a ministry. But if it's not helping us make Christ followers, then, then we're not we're not going to do it. And, and so that guides us. And, and that, that's one of the things that clarity about our purpose can help us to do. And uh, that's a difficult thing. You know, we could, we could spend an entire sermon series on that probably, finding our purpose. But, but here's one quote that I think helps me as I think about this. is from um, psychologist and Presbyterian minister Pamela King. She says, I find my purpose based on my greatest strengths, 
my best passions, and where I'm meeting the world's greatest needs. As I'm relating as an intimate part, as an intimate family member, spouse, friend, so in my relationships, and as I'm growing aspirationally in my faith, my ideals, my values. So when we think about purpose, it has to do with who we are and our strengths, our passions. It has to do with with the people we relate to, the people in our families and our community. And it also is not something that's static, but it grows as we grow, as we become more and more the person God created us to be. And, And so whenever we find that kind of clarity, it helps us to know what is God calling me to do? And whenever all of, we put all these things together and we have a grounded identity, knowing we're loved by God no matter what, whenever we have a humble spirit, we can accept failure as just part of being human. And whenever we're clear on our purpose, we can find strength in the face of resistance. And this is what we see in the civil rights movement. One of the things that's so inspiring about this, you know, sometimes you, you look at the photos and you see videos of the things that were happening and you wonder, how can people sit at lunch counters whenever people are just taunting them or even pouring things on their head? How, how can they continue to, to sit there while, while fire hoses are, are, being bla- are blasting them and, and while dogs are attacking them and, and not fight back? How can they do that? It's because they trained. They trained, they practiced before they came under pressure. And so they would have meetings and people would come and and volunteer. And before that, Dr. King says in his book, he said they had to prove to themselves and to us that they could not respond violently in the face of violence. And so everyone who was part of a demonstration, they had to to sign an agreement. They called it the Ten Commandments of of Nonviolence. And so these are the first five. He says, or people would would commit, they'd say, I hereby pledge myself, my person and body to the nonviolent movement. Therefore, I will keep the following Ten Commandments. And the first was meditate daily on the teachings and the life of Jesus. It, it, it wasn't enough to be just upset by violence, or to be upset by violence and injustice, and then to want to go do something. You had to ground yourself. What they were doing was grounded in knowing that they were followers of Jesus in, in that core identity, and they would spend time every day grounding themselves in that. The second is remembering always that the nonviolent movement in Birmingham seeks justice and reconciliation, not what? Victory. It wasn't about their success. It was about their goal. Wouldn't politics be better if we realized that today? It's not about success. It's not about winning. It's not about beating the other side. It's about justice and equality. It's about justice and reconciliation. And so they were clear on their purpose. It wasn't about winning. It wasn't about beating anyone else. It was about freedom for all people. And so they remembered that. They grounded themselves in their purpose. They walk and talk in the manner of love for God is love. Again, grounding the way they behaved around other people based on who God is. Four, they would pray daily to be used by God in order that all men might be free. And five, sacrifice personal wishes in order that all men might be free. Of course, all, he's talking about all people in the language of the times. But, but sacrificing what they want, that's humility. Recognizing that I may want this outcome. I may really want to fight back this person who just punched me. And I'm not going to because what I'm committed to is more important than that. I'm focused on justice for all people. Clarity of purpose. And whenever we put all those things together, the world can change. Just as after they went through this period of nonviolent action, then things did begin to change in Birmingham. Now, there was, there was, uh, there was a counteraction. I mean, there was violence that continued after that, but things began to change, and they were able eventually to bring about the kind of things that they were asking for, desegregation of lunch counters, and for people of color to be able to be hired for jobs other than menial tasks, and then not only that, but to have opportunities for promotions, for advancement. And these changes were because 
they knew who they were and they knew what they were about. Whenever we know who we are, that we are loved by God, no matter what, outside of any success or anything else that we can do, it changes us and we can keep going even when things are at their hardest because we know that we were loved into existence. And so here are the ways that I want to challenge you to practice that this week. Here are action steps. I want to challenge you to begin each day by reading those verses from Mark that we were talking about, Mark 1, 1 through 11. And and then repeat, just pause and prayerfully repeat verse 11, substituting your name for my son. And so you might read that and and say it this way. "And, And there was a voice from heaven, you are Brandon, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. And in doing so, every day this week, begin by remembering who you are, that who you are isn't about your successes, your failures, your titles, any of those things. It's about who you are as loved by God, as someone loved into existence. And then ask God, seek God in prayer, ask for clarity about your purpose at this time and place in your life. I think that's something that changes. I I don't think all of us come up with a a purpose statement whenever we're 18 and it carries us throughout the rest of our lives. And uh, if we're still doing the same thing at 18, either we are remarkable or we need to like re-examine our lives. But think about that. What is God calling you to in your life right now? You might think about that in in your work. What is my purpose in the work that I'm doing in in this place? How can I love God? How can I love others In, in in my family life? How can I love God and love, what is God calling me to? and seek the purpose that God has for us so that we might, out of the mountain of despair, I can't remember the exact words, but Hugh, we might pull out a stone of hope for the world and for all people. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful that you say we are loved, no matter what, that you love us simply because we are your children And God, I pray that you would just inscribe that on our hearts. On our hardest days, let us remember that. Let us not seek external validation, but to remember only that our identity comes from you. Help us to be secure in that. And help us, because we know who we are, that we are loved, to love your people in the same way so that the world might be changed and all your people might experience that love. We thank you for Jesus, for his example, and we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.